This is the Rolling Elephant Podcast for the 22nd of October 2019. And I am, I think I'm joined by Dave, but it's so cloudy today. Uh, what's the forecast looking like? Is, it, is there more cloud? Oh, this joke will get old really fast. <laughs> well, good news is that after this episode, another 40 minutes of cloudiness and then it should clear up again, I guess. <laughs> I think so. I think so. We are again joined by the guys from the Cloud Pod, Peter, Justin and Jonathan, uh, sharing more of their cloudy views about cloudy things. Uh, so unless you have any more cloudy thoughts... We can get on to it. So, the next uh, next major topic here is, and this uh, I'm expecting this to probably go on for a few a few rounds of of conversation because it's it's a fairly uh, fairly sizable chunk. But uh, what is a good cloud adoption strategy? And I think some of the things that we might want to touch on during this are um, the lift and shift approach. <laughs> Um, and also how to how to approach kind of data sovereignty issues um, where you know data must stay within either specific country borders or or um, or region borders and uh, we'll start off with uh, with with Justin for this one <laughs> oh that's a that's a good question um, so you know, I've done a, a several migrations to cloud um, Azure and AWS Um Lift and shift versus rearchitect versus uh, you know lift and transform type strategies and and ultimately at the end of the day if you own your application code you're writing it you have development teams you can make those transformations happen in your application easily then lift and shift isn't the right strategy for you surely look at lift and transform or uh, you know rearchitecture before you move to cloud that way you can get the benefits of the cloud much quicker uh, but if you're buying off the shelf um, software. You know, it's, it's something you're running your business on, but it's not something you guys have a lot of control over. Lift and shift makes a lot of sense and just, you know, take that VM and move it up to the cloud and, and get that advantage of it. Um, but just acknowledging that it's going to cost you more money to do so. Um, and so I think that's the two trade-offs you kind of have to make and say, look, you know, cloud could be very attractive from an ROI perspective if you architecture things correctly and you, you know, do auto scaling and you turn things off when you're not using them and, uh, you take advantage of those things, and and that's all hard to do in a traditional application that's from on-premise that was designed to be always there and always running. Um, and so that's where that re-architecture really helps a lot and really helps drive kind of the next steps of that journey. Um, and so I think that's really the two decisions you have to kind of make, and, and which way you go is, is really dependent on your business needs and your applications. Um, but neither answer is wrong. It just depends on the situation that you're in and the circumstances behind your application. And as well as if, even if you are in, you know, you do own all that code and you want to move to cloud quickly, lift and shift is the fastest way to do it. And so that's the other thing you have to consider, uh, take into consideration too is speed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what about um, data sovereignty and uh, that side of things? How, how should organizations factor that into their adoption strategy? Yeah, so they need to understand the legal ramifications of the data sort that they they have, right? And this is an area that GPDR has really helped companies start to really think about is, mm -hmm. you know, what what PI data do I store? Why do I store it? Who do I sell it to? What's the purpose and do I need to have it? And so I think um, you have to kind of have that inventory of, you know, in your application in general for private cloud or public cloud and really understand that those issues around that. And then, you know, look at what the different regulations say. You know, if you're if you're selling to German citizens, you need to have a data center in Germany. You can't take uh, German PI data out. So either you you build your application in a way that the data can live in Germany, but the main processing unit lives maybe in a cloud provider somewhere else, or you put the entire system as close to the customer as possible in Germany. And so you make those two choices. Um, encryption can get you can you know pave over a lot of sins in this area, and data protection around uh, TLS and those things. But it really depends on that regulatory body that you need to meet and what those requirements are. And, and some countries are fine as long as you have you know X Y Z controls in place and you can audit it and you can prove it. And other countries are very strict and say nope, that data can't leave this country at all. And those are the things you have to understand from your business. And once you understand those, then you can kind of develop the right strategy to meet those requirements. Uh, and it may be that you can't use cloud. And you know, if you're in a country that cloud providers haven't gotten to yet for whatever reason, um, it may be that you can't go there today. And so you have to figure out how to make that data set work in that particular country. Yeah, no, makes sense, makes sense. Um, 
So, Jonathan, same question to you. Uh, what what is a good um, cloud adoption strategy? You know, how 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 potentially does does Lyft and Shift fit into that? And what about data sovereignty? I I think it depends very much on who you have working for you and the skills that they have. Um, as Justin mentioned, if you if it's off the shelf software, then it stands a good chance that you can run it in Windows in Azure, or you can run it uh, virtualized just about anywhere. But but then really you're sort of missing the missing the advantages. You don't get to take advantages of the of the managed services. And I think the reason uh, the clouds are so valuable is not because they provide uh, some kind of basic virtualization. It's it's all the additional services that they provide around that. I've seen I've seen cloud migrations go terribly wrong. Um, people rush into things. They they don't think through all the requirements before they start moving, and then they they end up in a bit of a muddle because they realise that actually they have no solution to, for these compliance issues. But also, um, in, in my previous work, I worked with a, a cloud-only company where they had no infrastructure. Everything was in the cloud, and that worked very well. You have to remember that the cloud environment is is not exactly like your data centre. That there can be small. Uh, changes or small small differences in the services that are available. I think one of my best examples is you know no multicast. And so uh, if your if your application requires multicast to to chatter to itself or for some for failover or replication or uh, discovery, that's just not going to work in the cloud. And so you you'll be forced to rearchitect some of those things. I think you just need to be very very aware of what you've got and and what you're trying to get out of it before you, you decide what to do. As far as data sovereignty goes, um, I'm, I'm really happy to see GDPR, and I'm really happy to see that in California that there's a sort of a, a GDPR light, uh, which is being introduced in January to to uh, give cons- to give consumers of services access and, and rights to their own data. Um, I, I think people have been a little too blasé about storage of, of customer data, and I, I I'm glad that the, the penalties are very steep. Um, Yep. Unfortunately, we've lost so much data in so many breaches now, going back years. It's kind of hard to hard to care about it anymore because I know my social security numbers already been leaked many times. My address is public record anyway. I think what 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 concerns me more is sort of the metadata that people derive about me that I didn't provide. I have no say so in, and you just have to download. Uh, your Facebook data or your Google data to see what inferences have been made about you and what assumptions have been made about you as a as a consumer uh, that you have no control over. I think um, I think giving giving the consumers uh, rights over their own data will be the next the next big thing as far as data sovereignty goes. Yeah, it's actually a really really interesting point um, that came up in uh, a news article I saw earlier on the week that essentially suggested so much data has been shared, breached, reshared, um, that you may as well now assume that everybody knows everything by default um, and uh, just accept that and move on because the reality is that uh, the rate of data breaches doesn't seem to be slowing down. If anything, it seems to be increasing. So um, the, the sort of the whole information about privacy is largely you know becoming null and void it's kind of all these different regulations that are sort of coming up to provide data privacy are almost sort of trying to bolt the door after the the horse has left the stable kind of thing so i mm. i i hope that eventually some of this will get under some sort of form of control but at the moment it certainly shows like no no particular um, rate of slowing down at all. Uh, you know, if it's an address or an email email address or something or a password that's leaked, you can change those things. My my biggest mm. concern is is more around biometrics. Now we've got Google's uh, radar chip that can measure the shape of your face to authenticate you. Um, whether it's fingerprints or you know, DNA in the future or iris scans, it could be anything. And so those those yep. things that are much harder to change. Um, and so once once that's been lost. Uh, you really have very limited options uh, as to proving your identity anymore. Yeah, always keep one finger in reserve and don't use that one. Yeah. <laughs> the, the bloody finger in the box, yeah. 
Someone else had something to say as well. Yeah, I mean, your comment on the number of breaches seems to be increasing. Um, My my fear is actually that it's the same as it always has been, but it's that disclosure laws have brought it to your attention. And so I I don't actually know that it's higher or lower than it ever was before, but because we have to disclose these things now publicly, um, I think it's become much more foresight in people's minds that, hey, this data gets breached all the time and I need to be concerned about it. Where, you know, before, you know, last three years, I'd say this was never, never talked about. And it was always about if you were breached in a, an event, you know, it was always corporate legal's idea was like, well, does this have to be disclosed because it's brand reputation damage if mm-hmm. it gets disclosed? And so you, there's always this lean to of we're not going to disclose as, unless we absolutely have to. Um, and so now that, you know, even the most simple violation has to be disclosed, I think you're seeing a lot more of these announcements than you ever did before. Yeah, yeah. No, very good points. Although something kind of interesting that um, I think Jan brought up in one of our news episodes a while ago was, um, you you guys probably all remember the Equifax data breach um, some time ago now. It literally wiped 30% of the company value off overnight. Um, Actually, if you you look at that, Equifax recovered that value very, very quickly, disturbingly quickly, Mm -hmm. I would almost say. Um, to the fact that, that that actually that breach, despite the fact that you know thirty percent of the company value disappeared overnight, is barely a blip on the radar. Which I, again, I also find kind of slightly disturbing that there isn't more more of an impact of of uh, of these kind of events on organisations. Hey, we're just getting used to it. I think it's a fact of life. Yeah, yeah. which is a bad thing. Yeah, maybe that's it. <laughs> Yeah, there was a statistic I saw about it that said that uh, you know if you look at the last ten years of breaches, there's not been a single one that hasn't recovered uh, within six months and had a higher market valuation after the breach. Yep. So it's a it's kind of a shocking statistic. Oh, I I think the reality is we that the stock price is based on our expectations for future earnings, and so uh, when the announcement comes out we are afraid that it's going to affect earnings. And then six months later, when it's clear that the company's revenue streams haven't changed, um, we value the company accordingly. Yeah. Or it could be the fact that the the data is breached and then you know who their customers are and you go, oh, they've actually got a pretty good customer book, therefore they're going to be fine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Sneaky. You never know. You never know. Okay, so... Um, I think same question this time to uh, to Peter. So, what, what's a what's sure. a good cloud adoption strategy, and uh, you know, a bit about lift and shift and and data sovereignty as well. Sure. So, I've got history on migrations from way prior to the cloud. Uh, pre, in the '90s, during the dot-com boom, we um, we had a company that was acquired by a colo provider. So, our at that point, our our uh, goal was just to help people easily migrate into a colo facility. And, you know, we saw very uh, similar uh, things happen as we see today in the cloud where companies would say, okay, we want, we need to close our data center and migrate into the colo. It makes a ton of sense. Um, while we're doing it, we just like to upgrade this OS and clean up a clean up X, Y, and Z. And what tended to happen um, is that you sort of get stuck in the middle when you try to migrate and transform at the same time, even if the transformations are seemingly minor in the beginning. Uh, and you end up running two environments for a long time, and that can be very expensive. And we see the same thing in the cloud. Uh, agree a hundred percent with Justin. Like if you own your own application code, uh, it's a very viable strategy to just build a cloud native version of your app. Data sync is usually ra- relatively straightforward, and then and then you know you flip the switch and you migrate by transforming first. Uh, but for most companies, uh, uh, we see that you know they don't have that clean. Um, environment where they can do that. And so um, when they try to transform uh, during their migration, uh, picking, say, you know, changing their, changing from file system storage to object storage, et cetera, that um, they can get really close to being able to flip the switch and have a production size, scale, and cost infrastructure in the cloud, but be unable to turn off their existing infrastructure and the cost of that for months, maybe even over a year, and that could be extremely painful from a financial standpoint. So um, in general, I think a, um, 
a good strategy for companies in that position is to migrate first, then transform. Um, although your infrastructure is not going to be, uh, you know, it's probably not, you're not going to be getting scalability or benefit of, you know, shutting, automating, shutting machines off at night, et cetera. Um, when you get to the cloud, you know, and you do have to then make that a significant priority now that you have this effective technical debt. Um, it, it's a much easier way to ensure that you can then shut down your existing environment and be only paying for one environment instead of two and then focus all your efforts, um, which is really tough to do, but focus all your efforts on um, on making your environment now cloud native. Even if it's not from an application code standpoint, it could be from an operational efficiency standpoint. Yep. No, all great points, definitely. And if, I think the... One of the things you mentioned earlier kind of led me to let me down a slightly different path, which is um, what would what or what should disaster recovery look like in cloud? Um, it, it it feels like you know if an organization is moving to a completely different paradigm for providing their services, then you know DR is also going to be something kind of new and scary, but also very important to them. Um, and this question uh, first up goes to Jonathan. I I think uh, high availability and disaster recovery are much easier uh, mm -hmm. to, to do in the cloud than uh, than if you had your own infrastructure. Uh, just simply the expense of maintaining. Uh, you know, a, a warm site or a cold site with hardware sitting there aging that you're not even using um, is just ridiculous. Uh, the, the cloud, I mean, the problem with the cloud is it also has limited resources. And, you know, in the case of someone like AWS, if, if they were to lose the Oregon region or the San Francisco region, you know, if the big earthquake happens one day, there's an awful lot of customers there who are also going to want to fail over to another region, whether it's you know, Ohio or Virginia or somewhere else. And so, uh, although we all have these grand plans that, that disaster recovery will be easy, we'll just flip a switch and redeploy in another region, I think the reality is uh, that there may not be the resources in those other regions to to actually support you in the move. So, it goes back to the, well, now we have to buy infrastructure that sits there being unused. In the case of Amazon, you, you buy reserved instances to guarantee you have a place when it comes to failover. Um, I, I think pr probably the the better the better strategy around that is to is to maintain kind of an active active in many regions kind of deployment where if one region does go down it's not a real disaster and the other region picks up the, the bit of additional load. And it, you know, some of that comes down to the the cloud adoption strategy, doesn't it? It's sort of building 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 that growth, and also if you it's far easier to do that sort of thing if you are re-architecting to uh, a cloud native kind of in a cloud native direction as part of that migration yeah yeah definitely okay so um same same question uh, this time to, to peter you know what what should disaster recovery look like in cloud yeah i think uh, jonathan hit the big one which uh is that resources might not be available because everybody's moving at the same time um, most people are doing DR to meet some vendor requirement. So uh, being able to operate in a second region is uh, a requirement there. Um, it's the thing I like about the cloud model, because if you look at like the old, um, all of the old DR vendor providers, they're, they were subject to the same issues uh, of, you know, if all, if all they were, they were oversubscribed as well. So, um, you know, People didn't realize it, but they were in the same boat with those systems as well. I think the cool thing about doing it in the cloud today is that we've been forced to, when we go to the cloud, to ensure that we can run on this cloud infrastructure, which has been abstracted to the layer where um, everything is effectively identical across regions. And, you know, that sounds simple, but like when we were running on bare metal, I remember doing DR tests where the failure would occur during a DR test, you know, couldn't get up in four hours, it ended up taking multiple days to get up and it, and it was trouble shot down to firmware versions on chips that weren't the same. Um, yeah. And so 
Uh, all that's been taken away. Um, all of our, by definition, our infrastructure is all API calls. So uh, our ability to ensure that our, our second region is going to look exactly like our first region uh, is way easier. And this concept of scalability makes it uh, way easier, assuming the resources are there, uh, to uh, you know have a relatively low cost uh, secondary region where you know all your data store your data is there, um, your images are there to to spin up quickly, uh, and so for for the non you know regional super disaster, uh, any individual company who needs to fail over to another region has a really good chance, a much better chance today of their DR solutions working uh, in that other region. So from a DR perspective, I think it's uh, the cloud just makes things so much simpler. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, that is one thing that a lot of people kind of, I suppose, do know but don't acknowledge is that, yes, cloud does have elasticity, but like any anything elastic, it has a breaking point as well. And yeah, I think most organizations can can plan for disasters within their own environments. And, you know, to a certain extent, a disaster that happens to something outside of their controls, like a, an availability zone going down or whatever. But there's there's only so much, like any DR exercise, only so much that you can protect against. Um and so finally, kind of same question, um, but this time to uh, to Justin. You know, DR in cloud, what's the what's the view? Anything else to add? Well, I mean, I think Peter and Jonathan really hit hit the big points on this that I would have made. But um, I think that the cloud also allows you to do that you maybe couldn't do in your private cloud. That is interesting, and in how it affects your DR plan is it allows you to start doing chaos engineering and really start thinking about how do I how do I design a very HA fault tolerant system, not only from a multi-region, but also multi-AZ perspective inside of a given region? Uh, and then how do I continuously test that and actually validate that my DR is working all the time versus once a year when we all get together in a conference room, we're all saying, all right, the DR happened. Let's now fake it till we make it uh, and hope we hit the RTO, RPO point that we said we're going to hit. Uh, with chaos engineering and really kind of driving this in a different direction, uh, we can actually now do those tests all the time. We can introduce latency. We can kill nodes uh, and see if they recover properly. We can, you know, we can validate that you know moving traffic from one region to the other region is works and that customers aren't negatively impacted. So I think there's a lot of actually interesting things you can add to your DR capacity once you get past the resource concern that Peter mentioned and the uh, the overall strategy around DR and how you do that with Active Active. I think once you kind of have that, then you get a lot of actually really interesting capabilities to start testing it almost continuously uh, and have a much more resilient, more available system for your customers long term anyways. And so I think that's one of the interesting things the cloud kind of brings to the table that you didn't necessarily have in a private cloud unless you wanted to invest um, a ton of money on resources for uh, introducing chaos. Yeah, yeah. So CI, CD, CC, continuous chaos is is the extra, the extra thing to add then. Yes, for sure. Nice. So um, moving on to the, the next topic, um, do's and don'ts. Uh, and this time we'll, we'll start off with with Peter. You know, what are what are some of the favorite uh, do's and don'ts you you kind of walk organizations through when they're sort of on this journey? Good question. So open ended. Now I have to. You're forcing me to think. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think I think definitely um, from a do standpoint. You know, so I mentioned migrate then transform is a, a viable model, but. I think the minimum level of transformation is, you know, how are you spinning up that, uh, those workloads in the cloud? And the do would be to make sure you're doing that, uh, with infrastructure as code, uh, because then, uh, mm -hmm. you, you know, what, what's available in the cloud. Um, I think, uh, I think another do is around uh, ensuring that you automate that process and control that process. Yeah. So that your effectively your configuration management database uh is docu effectively your documentation the old days we did our we did our change we and then we went and we documented it in our cmdb and uh today your cmdb becomes that code so it's documented prior to being rolled out and and skipping that step it's impossible to go backwards 
So making sure you do that uh, uh, before you start and you have that capability before you start playing in the cloud is super important. Uh, do uh, do create um, uh, contained blast radius uh, based on the cloud. There's different methods to do this. So on Amazon, um, really the only way to do it is different accounts and making sure that you create blast radius around uh, your different environments, giving developers easy areas to make a lot of uh, mistakes and not worry about it. And then uh, mm -hmm. uh, not worry about messing with production accidentally, uh, as well as different teams not stepping on each other. Um, I'd say that I guess the don'ts are going to be the opposite of those, which would be uh, uh, running in a single account, trying and trying to uh, run and protect your workloads from each other with policy instead of with those technical controls. Couple other do's would be shift security left. So uh, one of the biggest challenges we see companies go through is you know they're trying to be very agile and their development group is working very quickly, um, but they spend a lot of time and a lot of effort and and they security doesn't really get involved until they're ready to launch something in production and then security doesn't like a lot of things they built and it's sort of start from scratch. So shifting that security check uh, as far left meaning as as soon in the process as possible. Uh, is super important for companies. I would I would look at transforming your security policies and processes along with your operations. Nice, nice. Um, so next up, um, same question to uh, to Justin. Kind of do's and don'ts. What are what are some of the things that you always recommend people do and don't do? Yeah. So. You know, I definitely recommend building out a cloud center of excellence, and that should be a cross-functional team uh, across security, operations, infrastructure, architecture, and engineering to really be kind of that team that defines the the cloud guardrails. How we're going to go to cloud? Are you going to make that lift and shift decision, or are you going to re-architect and why? And I think that's really comes to kind of the nexus of how you start building out your cloud strategy, you know, you might start pushing training through that organization. You start pushing through, um, you know, timelines and prioritization and, and conflict resolution of security and the different things that are really important there. That all kind of lives in that cloud center of excellence. It doesn't have to be dedicated, but it at least needs to be, people need to be tapped with that role um, because they become kind of the governing authority of how you're going to do cloud in your organization. Um, I think the second do is to really have a strong cost management plan going in early. You know, uh, you know, costs not checked in cloud can get out of control very quickly, and that may actually hinder your cloud migration plans. Um, and so, you know, taking a very active look at costs day one and continuing to drive costs and make sure that you're doing the right thing for the business um, is really important. And I think it's a it's a key thing that any cloud migration journey requires. Um, and then I think the next one is don't be afraid of the the platform services. You know, you should be looking at containers. You should be looking at serverless. You should be looking at uh, DynamoDB and Aurora and all these uh, cloud native database solutions. Uh, don't be afraid of those, and I think take advantage of them where you can because they'll save you a ton of time and pain um, later down the road. Um, so that's what my big three do's uh, on the don't side. Um, you know, don't pick the biggest and baddest server that you can. <laughs> you just because you can buy, uh, you know, a hundred cores at you know three hundred gigabytes of memory, and your know, your application will run screamingly fast on that. Don't do that. You know, by default, make sure it's the right server for the workload, and that you're not uh, over provisioning in a big way because that'll cost you long term. Um, and then also, you know, don't pick the technology because it sounds really cool. Um, a lot of people. You know, we'll get excited about something like um, DynamoDB and not understand the trade-offs that are inside DynamoDB. It's a great product when you use it properly, but when you don't use it properly, it'll cause you uh, nothing but pain. And so make sure that that center of excellence that you're going to build out uh, really looks at the pros and cons and looks at the application and says, yes, this application makes sense with Dynamo um, versus, you know, a different technology that would be better purpose-built for that. And I think that's a, that's a really a technology common in general, but it really affects you in the cloud. And then, of course, the, th the third don't is uh, don't choose uh, Oracle Cloud for your cloud provider. <laughs> friends don't let friends choose Oracle Cloud. I think that's, we just all need to agree on that. But why? Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
as Nancy Reagan would say, just say no. Um, so, uh, do's and don'ts, uh, Jonathan. I, I think you should, uh, let's start with the do's. Uh, I think you should definitely understand why you want to migrate to the cloud before you start doing it. Um, what are you trying to get out of it? Is, is it for better availability? Is it for lower costs? Is it, I don't know, uh, is it for better service for your customers? I think understanding what your goal is will, will certainly help with planning the migration. Um, I mean, if you, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Uh, but don't assume it will cost less, because chances are uh, it won't. It won't, definitely. definitely uh, I think the, the, the other biggest do's are definitely, definitely do the research. Um, find out what services are available. Start thinking outside the box a little bit. People often get stuck thinking in grooves. They've always done things a certain way. Uh, they, they've always had uh, you know, VMware in the data center, so they'll always deploy their things on EC2 or, or some other compute platform when containers may be a better option, serverless may be a better option. Um, I think definitely do some research before you jump in. Uh, Education is very important, though, because as as we mentioned earlier, as far as containing blast radius, things 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 are different. The risks are different in the cloud, although I think generally safer than private data centers uh, or managing your own infrastructure at least. Um, educating your people uh, is very important because if they don't know what's available to them and what mistakes they can make, chances are they'll make the wrong choices or they'll make the mistakes and data will be lost or reputation will be lost. I think probably the, the biggest do, though, is don't, don't go it alone. There are a lot of partners, there are a lot of people who've got a lot of experience in, in migrating uh, to the cloud or deploying things in the cloud. And there's, you know, between us, we've, we've probably got you know, 30 or 40 years' worth of experience which we could offer to, to somebody who wanted to, um, to, to take advantage of things like this. Why, why go it alone? Why, why rediscover all these things yourself and make all the same mistakes when you can bring in a partner who's, who's worked in these environments um, to get a really, good, uh, a really good head start? Do you have any recommendations no, no. for that, Jonathan? <laughs> <laughs> I've, well, uh, I've worked with some, some pretty good partners in the past. <laughs> <laughs> but but not recently. <laughs> so actually, something that all of you brought up, I think, which is really interesting, which I've kind of inserted another question in here, which is how much of the cloud journey is about tech versus actually about people? Um, and so this first off goes to goes to Justin. You know, it's it's all about people at the end of the day. Um, you know, the technology is easy. Uh, it's it's the business processes, it's the the security concerns, it's the the technology decisions we make day in day out that all affect this. Uh, and that's all starts with the people. And you know, are the people, uh, you know, cloud thinkers? Are they thinking about the next generation, or are they very happy keeping VMware, you know, in business and employed and and really driving that strategy? And so, I I think at the end of the day, it it all starts with people, and it has to start there. Um, because you you can't be successful in the cloud um, without the mind shift, uh, and without that mind shift, you won't do the right things, and cloud will fail for your organization or for your your project. Yep. No, uh, very good. Um, Jonathan, uh, same same question to you: tech versus people. What's the what's the view there? Uh, you'll never be successful without the right people, um, and I, I think. The, the, t the types of people we work with, whether it's whether it's partners or whether it's support or whether it's sales, um, they all they all have a very important role to play. But the t but ultimately, the the tech is what attracts people. You know, it's, it's the cool things. It's the it's the new technology. We can we can save money. We can do things faster. We can move things uh, you know closer to the edge. I, I think it's, there's definitely there's definitely a healthy mix. But without the right people, um, you won't be successful. And uh, same same question, uh, Peter. Tech versus people. Yeah. What's your What's your view? Yeah. I, I, the, I think for the last thirty years, the reality has been that I, I can't remember the numbers, but in the high seventies percentile of uh, of IT projects that fail fail due to uh, cultural or organizational 
uh, challenges, not technology challenges. And it, it, that just continues to be true. Um, you know, getting, pe- getting people on board and, and, uh, getting those processes and that culture embedded in your company is always way more important than the technology hurdles. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. It's, it, it still surprises me though, how often organizations, despite the fact that this is a well-known thing, people still focus on the tech first and then, you know, asking them about the, the people side of this afterwards, it's kind of a, well, not quite a revelation, but it's almost uh, a little bit of an afterthought. Um, so uh, it's even though like we all agree that it all comes from people first, I, I still I still am surprised by the number of times and number of organisations that that don't have that view of things or don't certainly don't seem to have that view of things. Well, I mean, the the, I, I the marketing have- team requires you to. You know, to focus on the technology because the technology is the sexy part that can sell product and can sell vision and can sell scope inside a company. And you know, saying, "Hey, you know, Jonathan's amazing. Come work with Jonathan," uh, and Jonathan's ideas isn't going to sell product, unfortunately, at the end of the day. And so, I think because marketing and sales and these teams all very heavily focus on the technology piece of it, it makes people feel like technology is the important part. And in reality, it, it isn't. Uh, but because that's what you have to sell, that's what people will align to. I think also, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, as as someone who's been in the IT industry my whole career, um, the people I've worked with, most of them got into technology because they loved the technology, and they didn't get into technology because they wanted to do amazing things with organizational organizational or cultural um, transformation. It was about the tech. I think that's why we get excited about it. You know, that's why we're in the industry. Fat point, I'm, fat I'm insulted point. that you didn't want to get involved, Peter, because of the technology, you know, because of me, not the technology. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you were obviously his second reason for getting involved, clearly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, with, with that, um, it'd be kind of useful and interesting to understand out of the the plethora of new stuff that's always being announced. And what, what, what are the things that you're most excited about that are coming up um, in, in sort of in the world of cloud? Uh, this question first goes to Jonathan. Ooh, you can't say blockchain. <laughs> no blockchain no, blockchain. Podcast. <laughs> no, that's fine. I, I agree. Uh, I think the, the thing that excites me most about cloud in general is just the speed at which we can do work now. I mean, I, I think back to 15 years ago, ordering servers, waiting for them to be delivered, built and delivered, you know, it would take six weeks and you've got to wait for somebody to drive to the data center and plug them in and configure them all and firmware updates. It's just, it's so, such a slow process to do anything. Where, whereas with things like Terraform or CloudFormation, we can start deploying infrastructure in, in minutes. And I remember being really frustrated uh, a few years ago with CloudFormation. You know, it used to take 20 minutes, the cycle time to deploy this stuff and bring it down. It was like 20-minute inter- iterations. And I, I just suddenly realized 20 minutes, it's, it's, it's a fraction of the time it used to take me to do anything. And it's getting faster and faster every day. So I think, uh, I think the thing that excites me most about cloud is just the, the freedom to do what you want when you want very, very quickly. Yeah, I I, I, was, I once worked with a financial services organization, uh, this and this was a, about a decade ago, and their time from a request going in to just a, a server being provisioned. This wasn't a server with a service on it; just a server with an OS and networking was six months, and you can now click on something and somewhere between, depending on your cloud provider you know 30 seconds to 90 seconds later an instance is up running and 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 there and ready to go mind blowing um yeah so yeah same same question again um but uh, this time to to peter uh, what's what are you most excited about with with cloud at the moment or things that are new on the horizon i definitely agree with jonathan the speed is Agility is amazing. Um, I think that the specific technologies that I'm excited about in driving that are around seeing companies do a really good job combining um, containerization of their applications 
um, with mm. cloud infrastructure and a really good CD um, uh, continuous deployment pipeline that to me is really bring sort of um, getting to the point where we're looking like what everybody wants, which is more of a PaaS and less of a infrastructure as a service um, yeah. environment that we're working in and, you know, creating more speed, more, more ability to leverage infrastructure more efficiently as far as oversubscription of clusters goes, et cetera. Um, and bringing, um, you know, alle- alleviating some of those fears, even though I agree with Justin that they're not necessarily realistic fears, but alleviating some of those fears around, um, cloud lock-in. So that model to me is, one that I'm super excited to see how the Kubernetes managed services come along, um, how we integrate CD with those services and really take that next leap as far as uh, the speed at which we can change and deploy new uh, apps. I mean, do you think we, we might get to the point where instead of people thinking about cloud first, they'll be just thinking about containers first and it, the fact that those containers will run on cloud will just be a natural assumption at that point. Do you think we're heading in that direction? I don't know. I see a lot of companies going in that direction. Uh, I don't. I, I still think the the um, it, uh, the viable alternative is going with a one cloud provider and using all of their proprietary serverless technologies, and that's also uh, very powerful. Um, uh, model. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I see the container world ahead of that, and just all the all the uh, momentum behind Kubernetes uh, is driving a lot of companies that way. And when you drive companies that way, and they drive training uh, and resources have uh, capabilities around that, then you know, beta versus VHS, even if it isn't the best solution, it it might be the winning solution. So uh, that that's where I'd put my money right now if I were betting. Nice. Um, so yeah, same, same question, uh, to you, Justin, what's, what's new on the horizon you're excited about in the cloud world? So there's a couple areas that I find really fascinating. And I, you know, one is, uh, and I think Peter kind of touched on this is the, the driving of containers and serverless as, you know, those containers and serverless first, you know, and how do we, how do we get that transition to an event-based driven architecture and to a container-based architecture? And then how does that simplify the overall cloud story and journey for us in a big way? And, it, you know, Kubernetes is a great solution, but it's highly technical. It's highly complicated and that's going to get simplified. You saw VMware, VMworld a couple weeks ago, uh, you know, basically release their own version of Kubernetes and they're going to be doing a lot of innovation to make it simpler. You see uh, Fargate on AWS trying to make that simpler. You, you know, so there's a ton of innovation happening in that Kubernetes serverless space that I think is going to be really interesting over the next six to 12 months to see how they kind of uh, pivot and kind of resolve and mature themselves and some of their, their deficiencies. I think the second thing I'm, I'm really interested in is this desire by both Google and AWS to simplify AI and machine learning and making it so that you know a person who doesn't have a, a data science degree make it approachable for them and that they can actually build solutions and build technologies off of that uh, of things like SageMaker um, or BigQuery and make it work and how powerful that's going to be in the market over time uh, because as you get it out of the data scientist's hands you get into the more you know, common engineering teams and they can start building AI models, they can start building machine learning. I think the amount of solutions that we see in that space explodes uh, exponentially um, as that becomes more democratized. And that's something I'm really excited about what's happening in cloud um, as well. Nice, nice. So I, I know what the some of these uh, some of these sessions are like, you sort of, uh, especially when one person gets a question, then the next person and you think, oh, damn, I wish that that inspired something with me. I wish I'd had a chance to say this. So to give everybody a chance to to kind of say all the things they wish they'd said, has anybody got anything else they'd like to add? And I'll, I'll start off with, uh, with, with Peter on this, uh, on any of the topics or indeed anything else. I uh, had so many things to say that I said thought of, and they're all gone. They're all gone. It's, I've, my, I've got like well, a I four mean, minute uh, ram. <laughs> it's totally ephemeral. Uh, no, but this is great. I had a, I had a great time, and uh, I have nothing else to add. No worries. So, uh, Justin, anything else from you? 
Uh, I mean, I, I do feel like, you know, to talk about center of excellence, talk about compliance, talk about people. Um, those are all great things. And, I, and, you know, and some companies may hear that and hear, well, that sounds like a lot of work and it's scary. And, and I would say, even if you aren't ready to start on a cloud journey, you know, a major transformation, you know, if you have one application that you think might work well in the cloud, just, yep. just go do that one application. Get that proof point early. Uh, experiment there. Maybe maybe you don't even run into production there, but at least you built it there. I think it's important for everyone to start getting more cloud focused and more cloud native in their careers. And I think anytime you can have opportunity to use cloud, even if it's not the right solution for your whole organization, that single project might be enough to spur interesting conversations and interesting thinking um, that you can take back to your private cloud world too. And I, I think that's important. And so don't don't be afraid of what sounds like a very insurmountable challenge because it's not. And a lot of companies start out with a single project and they then yep. over the next you know several years they do a, a massive migration, but it started out small and that's okay. And I, I, so I think we talked a lot about the big bang migration, but uh, the small ones are good too. Yeah. No, very good. Very good points. Um, and, and Jonathan, uh, same question to you. Anything else you'd like to add? Um, I, you know, I think uh, a lot of the, the, the services a lot of the new services are all focused on AI, machine learning, and we should give some thought to what what the future looks like for the industry. I I wonder, you know, how long will it be before we can say, you know, Alexa, write me an application that does this, or build me a function that does this, and and we take engineers, software engineers, completely out of the loop anymore. I mean, the the more we move away from infrastructure to event-based systems, that's that's sort of removed the the network team, a lot of the operations team, the patching requirements. That's all disappeared now, and we're focusing on just the business logic. So I think I think in in a few years the world will look very different. Um, the 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 cloud services, especially AI, is going to change the culture a lot. And I think, uh, I think if I was going to give any advice to anybody, it would be to start thinking about what your career is going to look like, uh, what the future is going to look like, and what your place is going to be. Because chances are you, you won't have the job you thought you were going to have in, in 10 or 15 years' time. Yeah. No, all good points. All good points. So... Um we're sort of coming to the end here, and I'd I'd like to you know, definitely thank uh, you all for for joining. It's been it's been an excellent chat. Uh, but obviously, you guys uh, come from the, the Cloud Pod podcast, so uh, who would like to to give our audience a quick intro to to Cloud Pod and uh, why they should uh, go ahead and subscribe immediately? Well, first of all, you get to hear the three of us banter every week about this, uh, which is fantastic. Um, but yeah, we, we started the CloudPod um, after reInvent last year in the singular mission that we wanted to create uh, a multi-cloud podcast that focuses on everything these guys are doing. So if you look at what AWS announces on a weekly basis, uh, you know, what is Azure doing? What is Google doing? How do they compare and contrast? That's what we're talking about each week on the cloud pod. And, uh, you know, it, it's a fun time. We, uh, we have a couple of regular segments where we talk about the news and, you know, by each provider. And then we, we do a lightning round where we talk about a bunch of news that, um, we either don't understand well enough, like IoT, uh, we typically skip those and push those to the lightning <laughs> round. But, uh, you know, we have a good time there, you know, just trying to kind of have something quippy and, and quick and fun. Uh, but overall, it's it's designed to be a way to keep you informed of what's happening in multi-cloud, especially if you're on one cloud provider like AWS, but you're like, hey, what's going on at Google? Mm -hmm. uh, we, we talk about that each week. We talk about Azure. Um, we talk about Oracle quite often complaining about their <laughs> ridiculousness. Uh, and, and, you know, it's just an overall fun time. And, uh, you know, we have a great uh, great set of guests that come on as well from time to time to talk about different things. Um, you know, we, we kind of shy away from the interview style show, not that they're bad, because this is an amazing show as well. Uh, but, you know, we wanted something that was very near time to when the announcements happen and that, you know, provides insight to people uh, about new cloud things. Because even Jonathan and I talk about all the time about, you know, there's things that we assume exist um, in AWS or assume exists in Azure and then you you realize that oh no it doesn't exist and they just announced it yesterday <laughs> or they've changed it dramatically and so it's very hard to keep up and so we're trying to take the hard work out of uh, that effort for our listeners so they don't have to uh, follow all the blogs and Jeff Barr and, and all the people on the Twitter universe uh, we're doing it for you and boiling it down into an hour and a half show uh, each week fantastic well, it's been an absolute 
pleasure having you uh, on the Roaring Elephant podcast. And uh, yeah, I, I definitely urge our audience to to go and go and check out the Cloud Pod, see what you think. And uh, yeah, it's it's been fantastic. So thank you, Peter, Justin, and Jonathan from the Cloud Pod. And uh, anything else from you, Jan? No, thanks you all to thanks a lot to our guests. It's uh, good to have fresh blood on the on the podcast, not having just you and me talking about the same old stuff all the time. So uh, thanks a lot, guys. <laughs> Thanks thank, for you us. thank you for having us it's been fantastic yeah. awesome well thanks a lot and uh, have a great rest of the day and that wraps up our cloudy session for now although uh, who knows it let us know if you enjoyed the episode and uh, what questions did we miss would you like to ask the cloud pod uh, either reach out to them directly or Maybe there could be another collab in the future. What do you think, Jan? No, I really enjoyed it. I mean, didn't say too much because with uh, four people on the on the line and me as well, that gets very confusing very quickly. So I did a lot of listening, as I often do. But uh, no, I enjoyed it thoroughly. And uh, if uh, more interesting things happened, and well, public cloud didn't ever stand still. Things are in movement all the time. So um, yeah, if uh, if our listeners like this, we would probably do this uh, again. And of course, if our listeners want to have more cloud stuff in their podcast uh, list, what you call that, playlist, then you can go to thecloudpod.net where you can find Peter, Justin and Jonathan doing their weekly thing about public clouds. Thank you very much, Peter, Justin and Jonathan, for being on the podcast with us. Indeed. And with that, I think that's all the time we have today. Wrap it up. You can support this podcast by becoming a Patreon. Every contribution helps, and there are little bonuses and treats for all of our Patreons. We are on YouTube. Please like, subscribe, hit the notification bell, all the YouTube stuff. Also, go to www.roaringelephant.org for a link to our Patreon page and more information about the podcast. You can follow us on Twitter using the at Hadoopcast tag, and you can send email feedback to podcast at roaringelephant.org. Until then, my name is Dave. And my name is John. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Goodbye. See you then. Bye.